0: everybody. Welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm excited for this episode because I'm joined by a friend of mine whose work I really admire and respect. He's somebody in the relationship and love space that I know not only gives great advice, but lives his advice as well and I really love the conversation that we have. You may have heard of him. His name is Mark Groves. He's a human connection specialist, founder of Create the Love and host of the Mark Groves podcast. In other words, he's a speaker, writer, motivator, creator, and collaborator. Mark's work bridges the academic and the human, inviting people to explore the good, the bad, the downright ugly, and the beautiful sides of connection. His purpose is to empower individuals to step into their power transform the way they relate to themselves and others and create authentic change for a life and love they'll look back on with a resounding yes. Before we dive into the interview, I want to invite you to a special group call I'm having on self-love on June 22nd at 5:30 p.m. Pacific Time. It's all about, well, self-love and what self-love is, how you can step more into self-love wherever you are in your self-love journey. There's always room to grow. So you can join me at christinehassler.com group. It's only $20. If you can't make it live, no problem. You can get access to the recording. Again, christinehassler.com slash group. Before we dive in, I want to talk to you about a really cool offer
1: from my sponsor Organifi. You've heard me talk about Organifi for years. You know, you get 20% off all your orders, but here's something really, really cool. So they are doing for the summer, a sunrise to sun kit set. And with it, you enjoy a 30 day free sample of Pure. So the sunrise to sunset kit includes green juice, So I love green juice. You can reset your body every morning with 11 detoxifying superfoods. Red juice, which is a caffeine-free energy boost provided by nature's five best antioxidant-rich berries and gold. Ooh, I love me some gold. Ease your body into calm, relaxed state with nine soothing superfoods and adaptogens like reishi mushroom, turmeric, and ginger. I love mixing this with a little almond milk, heating it up. It's my treat for the afternoon. So if you get this Sunrise to Sun kit set, which is such a great deal, you get... A 30-day supply of Pure. So I also love Pure. It's a way to clear your mind with this brain-boosting blend. It's made with natural compounds that help repair, protect, and feed your brain cells while addressing the gut brain access. It can help you support improve, it can help you support digestion, focus, and clarity. So this is a great deal. Go get this stuff. I don't know if any of you are traveling for the summer, but I know when I travel, I love to have things that help me continue to feel good, that are easy to pack, and Organifi individual packets are just great for that. So go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, enter promo code OVERIT at checkout. The free pure 30-count travel packs offer is mentioned on the Sunrise to Sun Kit page. And it automatically is added to your order after you buy the Sunrise to Sun kit set. Plus, you receive that 20% off your order. So again, Organifi.com, use promo code
0: over it at checkout. And now on to my conversation with Mark Groves. Mark, welcome to the
1: show. I'm so excited to have you here.
2: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here.
1: And congratulations because you became a papa about... Well, nine weeks ago from when we're recording this, but you're very new to to parenthood, so congratulations.
2: Thank you. Yes, I am very new. I will give out very little parenting advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give out uh, parent mental health advice. A, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I think that that's a really good one. Um, so I'll get to that. Uh, my, my one of my first questions for you is uh, I, again. I know it's you're only a few months in. But I'm curious, how has it surprised you or changed your life in ways that you didn't expect?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I think being that, you know, it's like when Kai, when we're up during the day, you know, I take him from her as much as I can in order for her to rest. And what I was thinking to myself uh, the other day is, I must have had a lot of time on my hands prior having (laughs) a baby. (laughs) like. I didn't realize how much time I had and maybe how much time I was wasting. Yes. Uh, Even saying that is is really the recognition of that truth because now I don't have time to waste. Like I have to maximize every moment. And the other thing that's been interesting to hold is that when I'm trying to get him to sleep and maybe he's being, you know, it's harder to get him to sleep for whatever reason, I'm recognizing that my thought process is ge- is geared around myself
1: mm.
2: primarily first like i've i've been observing how i want him to go to sleep because i have things to do and i'm able to hold that and be like oh yeah it's not about you <laughs> anymore you know and and that has been a, a really interesting sort of grief too Mm. Uh, like holding space for the the, that I'm allowed to have those feelings and it's not selfish or weird, you know, uh, cause I think it's easy for parents just based on what I've heard and now what I'm experiencing to have guilt about, you know, uh, missing their old life or, yeah. uh, you know, whatever it may be. So surprisingly, I didn't know that that feeling would come up
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, <laughs> and also, holy shit, if you don't have kids. You have so much time on your hands. Yeah, I,
1: know. <laughs>
2: I know. I know. Notice before you have kids.
1: I know. I said this on a podcast, uh, another interview I did recently, I was like, what did I do? Seriously, fuck. I should That's have writ- I wrote 200 books and have like four nonprofits by now with all the time that I had. I really don't know what I did with all my time. Oh man, it, it is it is interesting, isn't it? And that was one of the things that that I knew, but you don't know until you go through it. And also the guilt and about the grief of the old life. It's such a, a gosh, having a, a child, especially at the beginning, it's all the feels because you have so much love and so much gratitude and happiness. But then also this sadness and grief about, wait, hold on. I missed my life a little bit, but I really love this little being. okay, now I feel guilty so it it's just it's all the feels it's really all the feels on top of sleep deprivation, so I think it is a oh. it's it's an intense time in in our lives um and I'm curious for you, especially being a love and relationship coach, how have you navigated all this change and kept your relationship you know really? thriving. And because what I've noticed both my own experience and talking to so many people who've gone through parenthood at any stage is that often the child becomes, you know, the focus. And I think when it's a new baby, that's necessary, but, and Mm -hmm. the relationship can really suffer. So uh, did you have things in place before this big transition to help you through that? How have you navigated such a, a, such a change?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, prior to uh, giving birth, we went on a God, I forget what the term is that people baby use. But a baby moon. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I didn't know what it was called till someone, oh, you went on a baby moon. I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> uh, But we went to Zion and rented a, a little cabin and we actually did a threshold ceremony and we wrote down all the things we were letting go of and all the things that we were ready to shift in terms of priority, what we were afraid of and what we were excited about and did a ceremony with a fire. And so we've been pretty mindful about communicating those things and holding space for those things. Um, You know, as now that we're in it, which I think is very different than Mm -hmm. the preparation, I think is great because at least the fears are being shared and the the trepidations. And uh, now that we're in it, I remember when we were talking to uh, our midwife, she was like, yeah. So like, Soon you'll be able to have sex again, and and I was like, when are people having sex? (laughs) I was like, wait, there's either a baby on me or a baby on her or a baby between us, you know? And I was like, I don't know how people have Irish twins Uh, like that, like they're already doing it a couple months after, which is super amazing if you're doing that and that feels aligned for you. But what was really, yeah, it's been, I've sat with and had conversations with Kai about the recognition of the season that we're in. And, uh, and that that brings up challenges and disappointments and I miss her and she misses me. I think one thing that's interesting as a father, which I can't speak to the mother's experience, but I don't have a baby touching me all the time. Like I'm touching him a lot and I'm holding him a lot. And those are some of the best moments, but like she and, and he, have that primary relationship and so there is also this recognition that i right now this is a season that we're in i don't know how long it lasts i'll keep you updated <laughs> <laughs> or you can give me a tip here <laughs> but that recognition that um the grief that i i'm not getting necessarily as much connection as they both are yeah uh, and that there's space for that to be true uh, and there's no defensiveness around it or or that I feel I'm owed anything. I don't. It's just being able to recognize. That's just true. And eventually there will be, we will prioritize ourselves as a couple. Right. Um, but right now in, you know, he's nine weeks old and that I recognize that that's not reality anyways.
1: Right. Right.
2: Right. Curious your, your and Stefanos's experience with that.
1: Oh, goodness. I mean, I think it's been such a, such a, like a, adjustment on many levels. And we also came from very different family backgrounds. So that mm-hmm. was an interesting thing that I never thought was an issue until I just saw, you know, it, it be something that we had to look at in terms of just our values and setup and and what I saw happening, um, which we talked about it not happening before we had Athena was really going into a lot of gender role type of things, and yeah. my my request was that you know, that not happen. And of course I'm the mama and I'm a breastfeeding mama and there's, there's just things only mama does. Um, but that, that's been a really, you know, something we're still navigating through is I still carry more of the, you know, the mental and emotional load. Um, and it's, it's, there's that been that little slip into just gender roles. Um, and that's been one thing we've really had to navigate because, you know, Maybe things come more naturally to me as a woman, but in a lot of ways, they don't. I've just had to learn. (laughs) I've just just really, really had to learn. Well, you've
2: also been so achievement-oriented your whole life.
1: Yes. You know? Yes. So
2: I I recognize that.
1: I wrote about this in my Mother's Day post of, you know, I was good at something for 20 years, my career. And then I had a baby, and I'm like, oh, I'm not good at this. What is happening? <laughs> I'm not the expert. I'm so used to being the expert, Mark. My ego is same,
2: like, same, same, you know? Whoa. And it's like, whoo, student. I got, yes. you know, slapped yes. by the universe. Yes. You know? Yeah. That's interesting because I think um, what's been fascinating about uh, roles and recognizing, I guess, what you're saying is the assumption of a recognize, recognition of skill set that is made about gender roles. Right. And, um, also recognizing how much society has said to women, like your value is in now achievement and not staying at home. And that in some way you're not a boss babe anymore right. if you're a stay at home mom. And I think that's a fascinating thing to just recognize. Now I see all these cultural messages that I didn't see before, especially recognizing the value in, of attachment and the value of, Mother child bond, father child. And also, because I'm Canadian, in Canada, the mother gets one year of maternity leave. And in the US, I think it's something like six weeks. Yeah, it's not long. And I'm like, holy shit, you could probably trace back so much of the US's issues <laughs> to the fact that they don't value the mother. Yep. You know, in some ways, and, and how uh, little secure attachment. Any child whose mother has to go back to work to survive, which I recognize that, um, but how that is both disruptive for mother and child. Mm-hmm. So that to me, I'm like, I have all these also robbing women of the experience of birth. Yeah. Yeah. And the C section rate. And I mean, there's so many things that I'm like, I know. God, it's every system. About profiting off of our desire for bypassing pain. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. But realizing the initiation that was in the birth portal, and I watched Kai and I was just like, so much reverence, like to watch her go through that. My love for her deepened.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's an amazing thing to share. Yeah. Steph was such a, he was so. Amazing in our thirty-eight-hour active labor birth, he was yeah, just Kai like was
2: thirty-two.
1: Yeah, it's a it, yeah. It's,
2: you went thirty-eight. Yeah,
1: I went, wow, I went. you
2: didn't mess around. No,
1: I went thirty-eight, and then my my contraction stopped, and they're like, "Well, you need to go to the hospital." I'm like, "No, I'm not. I'm just going to push her out with my sheer will and determination and muscles." That's
2: amazing. <laughs> How many hours of pushing did you do?
1: Oh God, I don't even know, but it was it was well over three, probably.
2: Yeah. Kai was at, I think five or six. Yeah. And the doctor was saying, or sorry, the the midwives were saying that in a hospital, anything past two generally has to get special approval because they're all labor and delivery nurses yeah. too. And they were saying anything past three usually goes to C-section. Um, and I'm sure that's not always going to be true for people listening, but that's, a, and I was like, man, that's so fascinating just how much yeah. we've yeah. Even how we treat pregnancy as something's wrong with the patient. <laughs> yeah. Know, it's something yeah. to be fixed. Yeah. It's All a these disease. things I'm learning about.
1: Man. Yeah. It's it's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. The whole, the, the birth process, pregnancy, how we're treated as we're pregnant, especially for me being a quote unquote geriatric, well, they've changed the term from geriatric mother to advanced maternal <laughs> age.
2: They heard <laughs> you your, uh, your yeah. disgruntled. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is crazy though. Geriatric. Yeah, like you're in a home, a long-term right. care home. Right, You're on palliative care, and you're giving birth. Right,
1: right, right. I don't know if advanced maternal age is that much better, but you know, whatever. Um, but I, I'm, I'm I bow to to Kai as well for for birthing. I, any woman, no matter how she births, it's it's such an initiation, and I have just such, you know, giving birth myself. I have such reverence. He said, "Reverence." That's the word for for women. And our yeah. bodies and what we do and what we go through and, and it's miraculous.
2: It is miraculous. Like, it's it's huge. I read a post the other day that was saying the human female is the only being that is trusted with being between both worlds. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's so to usher in a spirit. And I was like, that is so powerful. Yeah, like it is. It watching is. that happen. I think one thing that was really hard for me was being suspended especially a 38-hour labor like ours was 32 and during that whole time I knew it was going to end but I didn't know how it was going to end and I didn't I there was nothing I could do to protect Kai from the suffering the pain Mm -hmm. but also allowing her to experience it not that I could change it but you know being present and holding the space with her Mm -hmm. But that was like very, I felt that was an initiation for me was mm. witnessing her in that, but knowing she's got that. Mm. She didn't need me. She just needed me, but like in a different way.
1: Mm. I love that. And that's such a beautiful metaphor for parenting, you know, because you're he's going to suffer. You know, Before we started recording, we were talking about our babies and gas and how awful it is to watch. And You know, can you imagine when they get their heart broken or they don't get asked uh, asked to the dance or somebody bullies them, you know, (sighs) it's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to see someone we love suffer. And it's it's so interesting because, you know, that's one of the patterns that plays out in so many relationships is Mm -hmm. rescuing, you know, going in and seeing someone else struggle or you know, not living into their potential or whatever and going in and somehow trying to relieve their suffering, somehow trying to rescue them. I know you've been in the relationship space for many years and you've seen many patterns. I'd love for you to unpack a little bit that rescue pattern, that pattern of going in and like fixing someone or saving someone or being the hero or or coming in and making someone's lives better or stepping into their potential. Where do you see that pattern coming from and how do we break free of it?
2: And it's such a great uh, line or correlation made because, you know, what I ultimately have to do in that moment, which I am for sure recovering people, pleaser, saver, codependent is to just surrender, you know, to what is and know that I can't save her, you know, to allow. And, and it's such a great thing because I literally can't do anything in that moment other than be like, I love you. You got this, you know, all the things, but like for, me to witness that and and know that there's literally nothing I can do to remove my choice is a great (laughs) growth opportunity. And I think the thing about relational patterns where you're over pursuing people who need to do the work and the part that's kind of ironic about that is the work we need to do when we are the fixer, the chaser, all those things is that our work is to stop trying to do other people's work, like to stay in our own lane. And that, you know, especially if we because you know so much of that as you know very well is sourced from childhood from determining and sourcing our value and having to caretake maybe brothers and sisters or a parent who's an addict or you know pivot around other people's feelings that all of a sudden you know we derive our value and our safety and security from being valuable
1: mm-hmm.
2: to surrender and let go of that place that we find value means we have to float in the space which means we have to Have value that's just innate. Yeah. Which the recognition of your own value as being innate means letting go of the need for other people to recognize you as valuable. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is
2: like again a strange. It's again like this weird (laughs) paradox Mm. because to to derive value as just being, you have to stop doing behaviors that say you're not.
1: Right. 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 <laughs> and, and then it's like, what, where do you go from there? That's the work, right?
2: Well, yeah. And you also have to be willing to watch other people suffer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And which uh, the irony there is that you are suffering, savoring them from their right. suffering. Right.
1: Yeah. And also opt out of getting into a relationship with someone who is suffering, thinking that you can right. go in and, and be the one to fix them. Yeah, it's
2: almost never works. Yeah, I would say it never works in the pattern that started it. (laughs) Yeah, You know, like it always takes it's much like interventions are, hey, we love you, but we're no longer going to enable you. And if you don't make this decision, here's the cost. It's I would say the identical sort of process or process that you would do when you're. Allowing someone else and creating the space for someone else to show up for themselves so they can become adults. And we can become adults by stop, stopping chasing someone like a child.
1: Right. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? What? You know, and I, I've i coached so many people on this show. I think I've done mm-hmm. how many live coaching episodes? I mean, you 402? are the 402. I You're know. The OG. I
2: know. I'm I'm geriatric coach. <laughs> geriatric <laughs> coach. Let me just pay homage and respect because you have been running this game for a long time.
1: Oh my goodness! Oh my gosh! Like
2: you are you were a coach and doing this work before it was even in industry. Uh, yeah,
1: I was. People thought I, uh, I'd say I was a coach and they're like, Oh, what sport? Soccer?
2: Volleyball? <laughs> yeah. You and Tony Robbins. Oh one yeah. One oh one yeah. Guy.
1: We're, we're thick as yeah. thieves. Me and T- me and Tone, We go way back. No kidding. I've never, I've never met him in person. Now, now you've, you've flattered me. So I've lost my train of thought. Hold on. Let me, let me, <laughs> well, you said I coach so many
2: people on here. Oh yes. Yes.
1: Yes. That. Thank yeah. you for tracking. Obviously you're,
2: <laughs> I'm the one who derailed you. So <laughs> yeah. I have <am> to.
1: <laughs> Thank you for that. Where I was going with that is in the 401 episodes I've done of just coaching people and then the thousands of people I've coached over the years, when it comes to relationship and relationship struggles and patterns, 99.9% of the time, it goes back to our parents and our upbringing Mm -hmm. and our family of origin. And I'm wondering in your work over the years, because you're not a newbie to this industry either, how long have you been doing this now?
2: man, 10 years,
1: 10 years. So full decade. Um, do you notice the same? Do you notice that so many of our relationship struggles and patterns and the people that we are attracted to stem from family of origin stuff?
2: Yeah. You know, when I first started, I wasn't of the mindset that I needed to like study, uh, internal family systems and things like that. Uh, But I remember talking to my friend, Vienna Farron, who's a marriage and family therapist. And she said to me, uh, I was talking about some pattern I was in in dating. She said to me, uh, do you think that comes from your childhood? Which, you know, classic therapist line, because they already know it does. But they ask you that question. So you could be like, do I? I don't know. Uh, But I didn't. And I was like, no, I had a great childhood. And because I just... You know, I had my parents on a pedestal, which they're great parents, but I couldn't hold the, the possibility that they let me down too. Mm. like that was confronting. And in some way they wouldn't be held as great parents or great humans. If I also had disappointments or ways I was let down. Right. So that really liberated me was this ability to just point to the truth. And I think it liberated my relationship with my parents too, mm. because they got to be humanized and, that really changed my family system in a lot of ways, at, at least for me, was that I started to point to these things with them and clear with them and, and and heal with them. And then it it opened up this window of conversation that they could have with me. And yeah, as you said, ninety nine point nine percent of the patterns we find ourselves in come from our childhood. And I you know, the other day I was doing a video on the pathology of nice guy syndrome. Mm. And I was saying that as an adult behavior, it's manipulative, and it is. And that's why it's not trustworthy, and that's why they finish last, because it's contrived. Niceness that's manipulative is very different than kindness,
1: Mm.
2: because it's conditional. And what I saw was reactions in the comments from people saying, yeah, but it's the fawn response, and like, that's not trauma-informed, and that's da-da-da. First off, I'm just like a little tired of all the trying to save everybody from any (laughs) emotional discomfort. Mm -hmm. Like codependency just loves the comment section. Yeah, really? Oh my God. Like we are, the coddling is stopping, thank the Lord, because we don't want someone who reads or watches what I said to feel like there's not a compassionate place for where the pattern comes from. Right. But a pattern, which I think all patterns come from a survival-based place. Like if someone is... Yeah, and if someone's like aggressive as an adult and controlling, we would easily say that that's a toxic behavior as an adult, even though it compassionately was derived for survival as a child. Yes. But the in- interesting thing about codependency and people pleasing and anxious attachment, uh, all these different ways we organize similar behaviors, is that there is a fear of the person experiencing shame. For that more passive way mm-hmm. of getting needs met, which is really mm-hmm. fascinating, I'm curious your thoughts on that because I've been thinking about that more.
1: Mm-hmm. Which part? My thoughts on which part? Because there was so much in
2: there. My your thoughts on how we tend to try to protect yeah. the anxious, yeah. the codependent, the empath. The we have yeah. all these words for people who, when it is a survival based behavior and boundaryless. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's boundaryed, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But when it's not boundaryed, it's manipulative.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But we tend to attack the avoidant. We yeah. tend to attack the, yeah. uh, you know, the what we'll even code as narcissistic.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm going to answer from my personal life first, yeah. and then I'm going to put my professional hat on. So Steph and I were in a couples coaching counseling session, and he definitely is the overt, more avoidant, aggressive in the relationship. I mean, he's not violent or anything like that, but he – He doesn't hold back. And I am more the empath, feeler, codependent, internalizer. And we were in this session and, you know, Steph was having one of his more overt, like, you know, aggressive, that type of behavior. And I was, you know, kind of upset and crying and um, energetically saying to therapist, "See? see what I mean? (laughs) <laughs> and the therapist, who I have mad respect for after seeing this, said, Christine, but what you're doing isn't better. He's over, but you're covert. Uh, you're internalizing. You're holding everything in. You're stacking up resentment. And you're not actually speaking up and saying what your needs are and putting down boundaries. It's like you, what you're doing is, is the same. It just looks different.
0: Hmm. It's
1: just the other expression of the same wound. His is just more outward. So his right. is more shamed where yours Mm. can seem more martyr-like. And I was like, shit, (laughs) you're so right. And that was a huge, um, you know, leveling of the playing field, for lack of a better word. And I think was my version of really seeing what you're saying because I, I, I too see that. It's like we have sympathy and empathy for the nice guy and like don't call that toxic. But the aggressive person over there, we can say, you need to be made wrong because that's not okay that you're right. aggressive in that way. Um, so I completely agree in so many ways with what you're saying. And I, I see it too. There's a, there's a, um, well, there's a lot of projection going on too, right? So in that comment section, I would venture to guess that anyone who made comments that you weren't being compassionate to the nice guy or whatever their comment was has that pattern running in them. So there's that projection there. And we tend to just like we reward the high achievers in our society without ever looking at, Hmm, is it an addiction? Like what are they really covering up? But if you're addicted to porn, Oh shame, shame. You got to stop that. But if you're achieving, Oh, keep going doing amazing. Or fitness. Yeah.
2: You could have a 10 million followers. Yep.
1: For that. E- exactly. And if you're a narcissist, Oh bad. But if you're a people pleaser, Oh man, so much compassion for you. It's you interesting
2: know? because the people pleaser on the farthest end of the pole is what you're saying, which I'm just thinking about it now. I might get the language wrong here, but is essentially the internalized version. It's the martyr version of the narcissist. Exactly. Right.
0: Exactly. I, I've
1: always said people pleasing the selfish because you're trying to get yourself liked and protect yourself and all those
2: kinds of things. Well, and now we have a culture that celebrates the victim. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, we need accountability. Let's just put that caveat in there. But when we call out the exploitation of victimhood, that is, and no one, when you're in martyrdom, you can't create. Right. When you're in martyrdom, you're like a siphon for vitality. Right. right. But you're controlled. Like you can control your environment, perceivably. That's why I always think it's like a master chess move to be a mm-hmm. martyr.
1: Because mm-hmm. you're
2: like playing in another dimension. The other person doesn't even know that you're actually holding the power by appearing powerless. Mm-hmm. And I only say that because I was so good at it.
1: Mm. <laughs> so, how you know, How are you so good at it?
2: Well, I, when I grew up, my mom would say things like, oh, don't worry about me, you know, those kinds of um. things. And I learned to stay silent, create resentments, be a martyr, and then build up the the scoreboard
1: Mm. and
2: then bring the score to the person who then would feel ashamed. Not having good access to my needs, not having good access to boundaries. I was the nice guy, so that's why I know it's manipulative. Mm -hmm. I also know that the circumstances we tend to get into, and I know you're a master at boundary work, it's like the circumstances that I got into were the exact circumstances that someone who doesn't have boundaries gets into. Mm. And I would be mad at the other person, but I never would have been sitting at whatever table or in whatever conversation had I stood for myself way earlier. So those were all invitations to heal. Right. You know, I think relationship we are now turning towards relationship very differently than our ancestors did and I know this is true for you and and your man, which is that we are using relationship as a way to become liberated. As a plo- as opposed to the place where we basically spend our time most in prison.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and I think going circling back to the victim uh, archetype that many people can get stuck in—that's a prison. It, it's, oh, it's
2: the worst. It, it's ew. it's
1: such a prison, and it's true. People have been victimized. People have had terrible yeah, things. Course. And I'm going to use the non. Woke like words, and I'm going to say to them, people have had terrible things happen to them, not just for them, but actually to them, that have been awful and horrific and terrible. Um, and, but, and what I've noticed is that the, the only place they feel like they can get any kind of compassion, attention validation is in the victim. And it becomes a prison that is so hard to get out of, and then when you're in that victim prison, just more stuff starts happening that makes you continue to feel like a victim. So I'm curious from your perspective for someone who has been through really hard stuff, who's, who has been victimized, who has had a lot of trauma and can feel themselves in that victim prison and is honest about that and has awareness about that. How do you get released? How do you get yourself out of that prison?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think the trap or the test I'll, I'll call it is that, we think that taking responsibility for the consequences of our victimization things that legitimately happen right like the acknowledgement that we were that we need to take responsibility for our lives in some way thinks that we need to trade compassion for what's happened mm-hmm. and it's recognizing that we can both have compassion for where a thing comes from like people pleasing the fawn response right like being stuck in the fawn response that obviously comes from a survival based place but it's not productive for our relationships and the life we want to create today. It might be working, but it won't work. You won't reach the levels that you truly want to reach if you're stuck in the patterns that are ultimately painful. Yeah. So it you must take responsibility for the behaviors we now have as a result of what we've been through.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that is where it begins. You know, someone was asking me the other day, I like, How do you get someone who's out of alignment to recognize they're out of alignment and change their life? It's like, you can't, you can only draw, you know, put a mirror up, say, here's what I witness. Usually you have to ask permission to even do that. You should. And then you show it to them. And then they get to decide if they're going to alchemize the dissonance of who they know they are versus who they're actually being. And then they're the ones who have to accept reality. If you can't accept reality, you can't change it because you don't believe you're responsible for it.
1: Right. Mm. So, when you say taking responsibility, walk us through how you coach people to do that. You can use the example of victim. I think that's a good one because I think sometimes people say, "Okay, I take responsibility." I'm, I'm maybe willing, but how do I do that?
2: Well, I think I'm. I, I put out a pretty good beacon that I'm not going to work with people who aren't ready to take responsibility for their life. Like mm-hmm. that's not. You're not even getting in the door <laughs> if you, you're not ready to actually say there's some things I don't like that I'm choosing and creating and I'm ready to change those things. So I think the first part, if I was working with someone who is on the edge of even that is getting them to actually write down and acknowledge, maybe speak out what things in their life that they're done doing and what do they want more of. And I think that gives people at least permission to say like, I'm done saying yes to things I don't want to do anymore. Mm. I'm done putting my husband or wives or, Sisters or mom's feelings over my own. I'm done not choosing health I'm done living in a pattern of choosing alcohol in a toxic way You know, it's like we have to be able to call out the truths like doing an audit on our lives And if we can't like I said if you can't At least draw an objective or attempt to and that's why external help is is useful but actually call out the truths of who you're being and what you're choosing that is the first step like that must occur mm,
1: mm.
2: because it's only then that you re- by doing that you are acknowledging choice and that means you can choose to not do something it it enables because if we're saying and this is true if you're stuck in the fawn response or you're in fight flight or freeze your nervous system is not recognizing choice right and so it's being able to put back in discernment and choice and you know that's why they say the op the the way to rebuild or begin to trust oneself is to keep small promises to yourself. Simple things like if you say you're going to go for a walk, you know, go for a walk in the morning. Make yeah. your bed. Making your bed is so simple. I know a lot of people don't like that one because Jordan Peterson recommends it, but it's a great <laughs> one because if you say you're going to make your bed every morning and you do it, you're building up muscle that says when I say I'm going to do something, I do it.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And it's such a great. Um, practice for the inner child too because the inner child has had so many promises broken and and there's so much dysregulation and feeling not safe of the inner child and when you make those commitments to yourself the the inner child part of us feels like like, oh wow there's routine, there's structure, there's keeping the word, there's safety and I feel like when we can create safety in our systems it's easier to take responsibility too because responsibility can feel it's a very it's a very emotionally and spiritually mature thing to do but it can feel quite scary because when there's yeah. no one to blame the only person that can do anything about your life is you and that is emotional maturity that is spiritual maturity but but if we don't have a great relationship with ourselves a strong sense of self if we felt like no one was ever there for us so how are we going to be there for ourselves um it can feel really big. So I have a lot of I have so much compassion for the human experience and especially for people who you know really want to change and want to take responsibility but it feels it feels somewhat terrifying.
2: That is such an important part of of the, the transition from being a victim or a martyr of our lives to transitioning is having compassion for where it comes from you know, yeah. recognizing that it is a survival-based thing, yeah. that you have the right, you know, I, when someone says, I can't believe I did this or I became this way, or I'm like, how could you not have?
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's a big thing we talk about on this show is really understanding, like, for example, missing out on key developmental phases, like the trust versus mistrust stage yeah. of development. And I mean, like, of course you don't trust yourself. Of course you don't trust yourself to make decisions. How could you? How could you? So let's have right. compassion for that. Understanding for that, but stop blaming anyone and go. Okay, well, how do I recreate that stage of development? How do I reparent myself? I, I, if I could rename the personal development industry, I would rename it to reparenting yourself.
2: (laughs) Because (laughs) that's so good
1: in so many ways. That's what it is. You know, that's what it is. It's giving ourselves the you know what we what we didn't have that we we need and. You know, so let's talk about for people in relationships right now, when your partner isn't taking responsibility for something that, you know, you really feel they they need to take responsibility for, (laughs) or you have an argument and you just keep having the same argument because there's not responsibility being taken. How can we, you know, point out, because a lot of times people that have a hard time taking responsibility just swim underneath so much shame. You know, yeah. often it is the most defensive people that struggle with the most shame. So what would be your advice on getting someone to see, to take responsibility, to take ownership with no defensiveness when they usually, you know, do get super defensive and maybe throw it back at you?
2: Oh my gosh. As someone who recovered, who is recovering, I'll say as a defensive person,
1: mm-hmm.
2: man, that work is one I've had to learn to increase my capacity for shame, to hold it instead of defend and and really with that frantic energy try to get it out like a dog shaking off water, you know? That defensiveness is mm. me trying to get rid of the feeling that I have and turn it around on them. And you know, I think it's because I didn't know the value of the shame. And I, I know that can maybe be hard for people to hear because we, you know, we think of shame as toxic, but mm-hmm. I do think there is a such thing as healthy shame. Yeah. And that shame that is because there's a better behavior available to us. And you know, I I know for me when I was reading the Gottman's work on the antidotes to defensiveness, one of them is to say I can see some truth in what you're saying.
1: Mm.
2: Oh my god, I hated saying that when I first did <laughs> I it. Can just I still it. don't. I can
1: it. see some truth in what you're saying. It's oh, like- it was
2: like eating your shoe. <laughs> yeah. And but what I found myself what I found happening was that I started to be in relationships I'd never been in before because I was getting past the upper limit of my capacity for intimacy.
1: Mm.
2: And I was in conversations I'd never been in because I'd always shut them down or turn them around. Mm -hmm. And what I also was healing was that this idea that if you have feedback for me or what I've done is wrong and that's true, then that means I'm a bad person as opposed to that means my behavior needs shifting. Mm. And that, that still can be murky for me to delineate. I also find that with less sleep parenting, I find myself more defensive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been really interesting because I thought I'd healed a lot of that. And, and while I'm not saying I haven't, I've not healed it under this much pressure.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so Mm -hmm.
2: the other day, or the other day I asked Kai to take responsibility for a language thing.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, this was bad. And then she pulled up the, we were arguing about a text (laughs) She pulled up the text and I was wrong about the language mm. that I was asking her to take responsibility for. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, I guess I need to take responsibility. She's yeah. like, you think? And I'm like, Oh wow. Now she, I'll eat
1: yeah. my shoe. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh man.
2: It was like checkmate. Oh. And I'm like, Damn it. But yeah. it, you know, again, it, I know it's connective now to say, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's connective to own things, to take responsibility for things. So having someone who, isn't capable of doing that I mean making the request to work on that you know I think the challenge is is that we're really in two circumstances relationally we're in a relationship where both people actually see the relationship as a vehicle for their liberation and growth and then you're in relationship with someone who doesn't mm-hmm. and the one when you're in relationship with someone who doesn't you know, there's so many different circumstances of that and every choice anyone makes is theirs to make. Mm -hmm. But it's like sometimes it's actually bringing forward what you need and what you desire and seeing if they can meet it. And if they can't, you get to decide if you want to be in a relationship with someone who isn't willing to see it as an opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. And, man, that's the hardest work.
1: Mm -hmm. So, What do you think? Oh my gosh. Well, I think a lot, but I'm going to ask you a question first because I know my listeners really love like scripts and tips and like, okay. So they have a partner who needs some help taking responsibility and they don't think their partner is a lost cause. You know, they just know there's some hurt and, and they have someone that, you know, is willing to work. So when you were in the stage where it was harder for you to take responsibility, what what could be said to you or how could things be handled in a way that it actually got through to you that, oh, you need to take responsibility? Because I do think, yes, we're responsible for taking responsibility, but sometimes we do need that nudge from our partner yeah. to be like, hey, man, like, come on. So any, any ways of being or things that one can say that can be heard?
2: Well, I do think it's really helpful for a third party to be able mm. to negotiate these things because they're able to translate wounds, mm-hmm. I think. You know, so like a skilled coach or a skilled therapist who's skilled in dialogue, like uh, uh Imago dialogue from mm-hmm. uh, Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt, or the Gottmans, I believe, have a dialogue model too. Um, but free of that, like doing it on our own, which I think is totally possible because if you want someone else to have a behavior, you have to model it. And usually what goes with defensiveness is criticism is the way that someone starts the conversation and gives feedback. Like you always, you never, you know, the standard, I still do it. Sometimes I'll be like always. And then I'm like, that's not true. I'm sorry. You know? So being able to structure language in a way of saying like, Hey, you know, when we had that conversation the other day, I found myself giving you feedback and I find that you get really defensive sometimes when I give you feedback or I was sharing my experience and I noticed you get really reactive, is there a way that I could share feelings with you and share experiences with you that would feel better for you? Mm. At least that's inviting them to participate in the construction of the language.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, And, you know, these are all ways that we're really, what we're trying to do is disarm the nervous system. Yeah. At the same time, like that does require work from the person receiving. And so I think if we can creep into that together. The other thing I'd say is, can we work together on how we handle conflict, how we negotiate and discuss things? I would ask the questions like, are there times when you see me having a hard time receiving feedback? Mm, mm,
1: mm. I love that. I love that because it, it, it again, do you use this? I think I've used it once already. I'll use it again, but to level the playing field, to not yeah. feel like an attack because... I know in relationship when either person feels attacked, well, then you're going to have defensiveness. Um, and one thing I've noticed, especially among women, is we need to be super aware of. I don't want to phrase this like when we think we're being conscious and nice and loving and in our feminine, but we're not. So let me try to give an example. <laughs> like there's a like there's a little dig, there's a little passive aggressive dig, and so what I just invite, especially my Female listeners, um, those of you that are in relationships with men, to just be aware of because I see it over and over and over again, is that you come at it vulnerably and sweet and nice, but there's just a little dig, like a little <laughs> yeah. bit of a "you stupid man, can't you take I, <laughs> You know, and, and it's not. It sometimes it's subconscious, um, and it's because and, and it's coming from our wounded place, you know, yeah, and course. our own protective patterns and our, our you know, fear of our, our safety, not being sacred. Yeah. And so what I've really learned too about in my relationship, getting stuff to take responsibility is leading with where I'm going to take responsibility as well. Mm. Now, you don't want to get into over responsibility. Like sometimes where I take responsibility is I say, I'm taking responsibility for the fact that I often don't say something that you've done that's really bothered me and I just hold it in. So I'm going to say it right now. And I invite you to consider how it might've landed with me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it really having to be in that place of calling forward that responsibility for the other person without making them wrong and doing it. And that's, that takes practice. It definitely oh takes gosh, practice. It's so
2: powerful. It's so powerful. It does take practice, doesn't it? It, to build.
1: it does. It does. It does. <laughs> and, and to
2: trust a change of pattern. Like I find that, you know, when you stop being critical or you stop defensiveness, the nervous system of the relationship is so familiar to a pattern that this, yeah. I think especially because um, male emotion has often been manipulative in female experience. So when all of a sudden your emotion is trustworthy, and that could be true both ways, uh, then all of a sudden when it becomes trustworthy and reliable and not passive, right? that can be disruptive because all of a sudden we're like, wait, what?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Wait, we're going to try something new here?
1: Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, and even if the new, and this is another pattern I see one person in the relationship is doing all this consciousness work and brings these new tools into the relationship. And the other person who hasn't been doing all this work is like, wait, we're changing the game here. Like this is, And so often that defensiveness can come up and the person doesn't necessarily feel attacked, but they feel like they're less than in some way because all of a sudden the other person in the relationship has all these conscious tools in their toolbox that they're trying to use. So I've worked with a lot of couples, one who maybe is a little ahead on the personal development journey than the other, of how to come back and, and like come from the same place. And I saw this so much in my first marriage and I have never had a conversation with my ex-husband about it, but he'd probably agree. I was getting my master's degree in spiritual psychology and I had all this information and I'd come home and be on my soapbox about things, but I wasn't really living it yet you know mm-hmm. I, and I was able to point out all the things he was doing not great. but instead of embodying it, I tried to like teach it before I really walked it myself. And that's another huge thing I've realized in, in relationships sense. And when I coach people, especially someone who has been doing more of the work, because it's a huge issue in relationships. I don't know if you're seeing it over and over and over again, but it's one of the biggest things I see in relationships these days. One person's really, really growing and the other person's not. And they feel yeah. like they're growing apart. And my, my coaching always comes back to, okay, you embody it. You live it. Because if you want this other person to come be on this path with you, you're not going to get there by being their coach, you
2: know. <laughs> yeah, right. Insert codependency.
1: Yeah, exactly. If you if you you enroll them through your way of being, and it's like no, no, but they need to change. They need to work on their father issue. Otherwise, we're never going to have intimacy. I'm like, and there it is, right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> there it right. is. Right. These there.
2: conditions. Yeah. These.
1: Yeah. So with that, because that's a, one of the biggest questions I get when one person is doing all the consciousness work and their partner isn't. Is there hope
2: for the relationship? Yeah, you know, I think there always is. I remember saying to Julie Gottman and John and I had interviewed them about their book, Eight Dates, which is a great book. Mm. Uh, It's like eight essential conversations for relationships. And I said to her, uh, it's a massive red flag if someone doesn't want to read the book, right? Like, do you just break up with them? And I was kind of joking, but kind of not. And she was like, no, Mark absolutely not (laughs) and she was saying that you get curious about what it is about the book and is there another method is there another path Mm -hmm. and i think about that often like i I, that you know our work i was saying earlier like our work lies in trying to be with things that can't change you know or Mm -hmm. don't want to change how do we relate to that there i do think there comes a time though right like if we're If we have to halt our growth for someone else's stagnation, then eventually we will resent them on such a deep level that contempt will build up on so much and we'll probably get sick if we don't leave.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So I do think there is a line. Um, I don't know what that line is because I think it's personal and it's up to each person. The question I like to ask people, you know, if they're considering should I stay or should I go, I think you make a great point. Like, are you actually embodying the things that mm-hmm. you're saying? Mm-hmm. Are you Are you actually creating emotional and psychological safety for them to change? Or are you already making them wrong? Have you already left?
1: Right. And you're just trying to get right. them to leave. Right. You know? Right. You're... And
2: a question I often ask people is like, is staying or going abandoning yourself? And a question I remember from the book, Too Good to Leave, Too Bad to Stay, mm-hmm. which is a great book. Um, she says... Even if they changed everything and became everything you wanted, would you want to be with them? And I think that's a good question for people um, because I think sometimes in relationship, we try to force things that don't want to be. And I think in society, we've made this idea that if your relationship ends, you're a failure.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: so we stay in relationships that we chose at a different level of consciousness and a different level of awareness. And I don't even mean that hierarchically, but like maybe even just having connection to what we truly desire. Like often when we're young, we choose relationships we're taught to want
1: mm-hmm.
2: or, or we learn through patterns from our families. And then we wake up in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And we're like, wait, what am I doing? Mm. Do you want to change with me? And the other person's like, No. I thought we were fine not talking and not having sex, right. you know, like, and then you're like, but I want more from life now. And you're allowed to want more. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely complex. And it's, I think, one of the greatest conundrums of the human experience.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's so many conundrums. In this <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> so add it.
2: Add it to the list. So
1: of many conundrums. Up. Here's another. I could talk to you forever. I would really love you to come back. And by the way, do you know our children's birthday are two days apart? Like they're, I mean, a year. But really? Yeah. Athena's at the 13th of oh. March hmm yeah yeah oh wow yeah that's cool yeah so you'll have to come back maybe you know a little farther into your parenting we'll exchange we'll exchange I our like parenting it. stories like it, yeah. um but my my maybe my last question for now i never hold myself accountable because something else may come up, but yeah another tr- another common thing huge question it comes up on the show it comes up in our be the queen program which is for women calling in their partner mm-hmm. why do i keep attracting emotionally unavailable men or emotionally oh God, unavailable people
2: the question of our times, mm-hmm, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I have a quote that went pretty viral that was about, um, emotional unavailability is only attractive if you're unavailable yourself. Mm-hmm. And you know, that I think that could sound a little trite in that it is it, We want to be able to understand that like when unreliability is what we're conditioned to know or be attracted to. Right. Then it's just familiar. And it's attractive and it's something we're, tra- it's usually, as we were talking about earlier, a childhood wound that we're trying to play out in adult relationships. Yep. And, you know, I remember years ago, I had this, my general belief system was that the reason we choose unavailable people is we don't believe we're worthy of being chosen. Right. I do think there's an element of that, that the be- the people we're choosing are reaffirming our self-identity right? They're reaffirming that it's normal for me to not be fully shown up for. But I started to see it differently that it's not that we don't believe we're worthy of it, because I think innately in our being, we believe that. And I'm sure people have different philosophies about that. But I actually think it's that we don't trust love. Mm. We don't trust that if we open to it, that we, we won't be betrayed. Mm -hmm. We won't know how to hold it. We won't know how to grow with it. And we don't trust ourselves. And so I think it's actually about recreating trust, which you and I were talking about that earlier about stepping into choice. Because if you step into choice and discernment, then you'll trust yourself. Right. But if you're faced with a red flag or an orange flag and you keep moving towards it, you're actually putting your body in circumstances and your psychology, your heart in circumstances that aren't safe. So on an unconscious level, the more you continue to pursue unavailability, you continue to reaffirm that you don't trust yourself.
0: Right.
1: Right. Right. This kind of goes back to that missing that developmental stage, the trust Mm -hmm. versus mistrust. Mm -hmm. And I I love everything you're saying. I'm going to just add something. I may be saying what you're saying in a different way, because we were talking about this in my be the queen program last night. We had a call and what I said was, you know, we, we go for emotionally unavailable people because we're emotionally starving.
2: Mm.
1: Meaning, mm. and it's not so much that we're unavailable, we're so hungry for emotion, we're so hungry for connection, we're so hungry for love, that we, we will we'll settle for anything. And add in the fact, as you were saying, it's familiar. So it's like, well, this is where I went to go get fed in my childhood maybe this person can feed me cuz i'm just so hungry mm. so it's not a desperation uh, it's a, it's this hunger for it and we look for where you know we look at the same restaurant that we that was there in our childhood mm, and i think I like that a huge part of of satiating that hunger is really looking at where am i not meeting my own needs cuz i went through this i would attract super attractive, but very emotionally unavailable men, like over and over again. And this was right before I met Steph. I'd done a lot of work. Like I had, you know, I was, I was, I had my podcast. I was coaching people. I was creating results in other people's lives. It's like, what is this? And people would say, oh, well, where are you emotionally unavailable? So I'd be like, where am I emotionally unavailable? And I didn't, I couldn't find the place of where I was emotionally unavailable, but I could find the place where I was emotionally starving, going, mm. whoa. I am not meeting my emotional needs. I am not meeting my my safety needs. My nervous system needs my needs to feel joy and happiness and connection. So I am just attracted to like this sort of high of this cuz the thing about emotionally unavailable people is that they elicit like an adrenaline response. Yeah, they and do. And it's sort of like when you're when you're super tired, you can dream cup drink a cup of coffee or several And you can get like a buzz and go like, okay, I have energy, but it's actually not sustainable energy. It's actually not healthy energy. So it's like the emotionally unavailable person feeds the emotionally starved person with that quick jolt, but it's not satiating. And so what we were talking about last night when I was coaching the woman, I was like, okay, how are you going to feed yourself? How are you going to feed your emotional needs so that you don't have to go for this cup of coffee? I don't know why I use so many food metaphors in that explanation.
2: <laughs> I but, think they're relatable, though. But, yeah.
1: but everybody kind Especially of gets it. Especially going to
2: the same restaurant. Like, yeah. that's familiar for people. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, that, is. that element of, of the perpetual, you know, also what happens, too, is because it's so, unavailability is such an aphrodisiac. Yep. In, in some way, it actually, on a biological level, is evolutionarily indicating high mate value. So that's yep. why I think it can be confusing. But the other side of it, too, is that, we then tend to enter intimacy with them, and then we treat the wound of not being chosen with arousal, and that can become a very easy um, addiction
1: Mm. cycle. Why would someone that's emotionally unavailable biologically register as you're a good prospect?
2: Because they're uh, drawing on the idea that they have lots of choice. So because they're unavailable to you, and they're maybe not texting you as much what the system codes that as is that they are they don't need you they're in probably conversation with lots of potential mates
1: mm, so they're highly desirable
2: yeah and that's why it's mm-hmm. so undesirable when someone is like over pursuing mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, emotionally unavailable people are so good for the anxious attachment style. Oh, oh good Lord. So good. Like, you want to grow?
2: Go date an unavailable person. Someone fresh out of a relationship. That's I do that. Yeah, and I they'll tell that. you they're pretty much ready, but not and yeah, not you.
1: I did that. It was fun.
2: I did that. I was a master <laughs> of that. Oh, my oh, God. Goodness. I remember someone said to me once, you have a lot of great relationship advice. Um, when was the last time you actually let someone love you? Mm, oof. And I remember I was 35. I'm 44 now. That one hit me square in the wall.
1: Because
2: mm. all of a sudden, every time I ran from someone who could love me, it became so obvious in that moment. Like in the second that I transmuted those words, I felt grief.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I knew my last question wasn't my last question. So I'm curious, what was the thing that I mean, I know there are lots of things, but I'm wondering if there was a turning point that got you to really open your heart and trust love. And, and let someone in so much so that you have a child with her
2: now. Well, you know, the previous, uh, we call it 1.0 of our relationship because <laughs> we broke up for a year. Yeah, We didn't plan on getting back together. We now call that the sacred pause. But, um, in 1.0, she wasn't fully available and I was still pursuing it. So, you know, I, when I look back, I was terrified of a woman. Mm. Like a woman who could fully choose me, fully love me. I ran from a lot of women, um, and Kai will agree with this. You know, I'm not saying anything that that she wouldn't say, and and she really hadn't fully stepped into adulting either. Neither had I, because I was over pursuing someone who was basically telling me they're not sure they could stay, they're not sure they could fully choose me. And it was through the the pressure of that connection that I finally said no more on like where I meant it in every cell of my body where I had said it before, but there was still like 5% of me that was like, but a bit more, you know? And so when I finally said no more, I could trust myself on a deep embodied level. Like there wasn't a question in my body I'd hit the never again. Mm. And what was so healing for us in that process is that I said to her, like, whether you choose this relationship or not, I love you. That's not going to end. But I am going to create a story and you're welcome to be part of that story. But I'm not going to let my story die.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there was something super liberating for her about that because I didn't need her. I was inviting her to be part of it. Yeah. And the other part that was really healing is that love didn't end because the relationship ended. And that was teaching me that relationships could end and I had had a previous relationship where I felt like her and when I left all I wanted was someone to say it's okay that you're still a good person that you're mm-hmm. and you know I was young when that happened and you know for all those reasons the person I was in relationship with was hurt and she should have been hurt based on you know I ended it after an engagement I just proposed and then I ended it Yeah. and with Kylie it was just so important to me that she knew that I loved that she was choosing what she needed to choose, even if that wasn't a relationship with me, because I knew her choosing that would have been not in service of her or me.
1: Yeah.
2: So it's through that process that I became very attracted to a woman. Mm. And then she became the woman. Mm. And that she came back fierce. (laughs) (laughs) What she said to me, which was a lot of the repairing that we needed to do, was I choose you and I'm not going anywhere. And I, for reasons, you know, good reasons, I didn't believe her at first. And I told her that she said, I know, and you have every right not to believe me, but mm. I mean it mm. and I'm not going anywhere.
1: Mm.
2: So, yeah, I think there was, it was being ready to meet it because I had, as you said, I had nourished myself on such a level that I wasn't looking for a relationship to be nourishment. Right. My only space is nourishment.
1: Right. Right. Right, right. And, and but you were open to, to nourishment because sometimes we can get so mm, content, I guess, in, in our own self fulfillment that we can even block a relationship from coming in. So I love that you had that nourishment, and your heart was also open to allowing someone to come in and nourish themselves, and nourish you, and nourish the relationship because there's always those those three things. So I love your journey. I love your story. I love your love story. And I love the work that you do. I really resonate with with Ditto. so much that's there. It's, it's really great to have relationship experts out there that are doing the work in their relationship and are, are living it. And I know you and Kai do. So it's a beautiful job. And congratulations again. And will you come back and we can dig into okay. more relationship <laughs> questions and all that stuff?
2: hassler all day are you kidding me i would talk to you all day okay likewise thank you for having me
1: it's so my pleasure thank you for sharing your wisdom where can people connect with you more
2: uh you can find me on instagram at create the love which is where my relational work is and then where i share personal thoughts feelings opinions which i have lots uh, is at it's mark groves and then i also have the mark groves podcast which you were recently on Mm -hmm. and um Yeah, you can find all my courses are on createthelove.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark.
2: Thanks so much.